Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Harm, it is Bruce Boudreaux's birthday as we record our second VanCast of 2023. And I know if it was Christmas, he'd want a better team or at least a better blue line. Uh, um, if you were Bruce Boudreaux on your birthday, what is your biggest birthday wish? Oh, geez. Can I clone Hughes like three times? I think that would be that'd be my wish. Just rehaul, re- overhaul the, the blue line um, or, or better, better yet, actually get back the second the, the second half version of, of Demko from last season. I think that would paper over a lot of the team's defensive mistakes. So if you could get both of those, I think I think Bruce would be a lot happier of a man. Yeah, I think uh, I think that would replace you know um, more hair and things like that that usually you know as frivolous people want in our birthdays. But uh, uh, Vancouver coming off a seven to four loss to the Winnipeg Jets, an eventful, interesting game uh, as we often find with this team because there's, there's rarely a snooze fest here, right? There's always um, entertaining offense and shake your head defense, and this game was full of that. We didn't get necessarily the turnovers that we usually get, but it's just other types of mistakes, whether it's, you know, defensive zone awareness, whether it's letting a player split two defensemen and walk in on Main Street, odd man rushes galore, goaltending changes. You know, Vancouver was uh, down 2 nothing on two kind of marginal goals. They tied it before the end of the period. Then they gave up two real softies to start the second. Makes a goaltending change. Delia comes out. Martin comes in. The Canucks all of a sudden get um, gets a jolt from that and tie the game before giving up the next three. Uh, and power play, which had been so good for this team, I'm not sure if that's on the wish list because that's something he believes he's got. 
Power play again, uh, got nothing and gave up shorthanded, uh, shorthanded goal. And that's certainly not where you want to be given the firepower on this offense. But let's start with this Winnipeg game because, you know, when we talk about the consistency, you, uh, sorry, go ahead. Did you want to, I was going to say, did you want to start with the Winnipeg one? Just because it feels like I'm, we, we've been doing the same yeah, podcast I, intro, like all well, the time. You know, so you're right. And we, so, you know, from the last game, the Canucks lose 6-2 to the Islanders, have a pretty good performance in a 4-2 win against Colorado, and then show who they are again with a 7-2 or 7-4 loss. Let's talk against about Winnipeg. Colorado for a bit. Yeah, let's go to Colorado. I, I, I need I need a positive. I need to get the ball rolling on a on a good note here. That's fair. How's <laughs> the positivity? Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know about you, Farhan, but I was really curious to see the response after that Islanders game because we kind of talked about it where they just had very little defensive effort to be totally honest in terms of we saw the 18 to three shot blocks um the major difference in in the commitment and how the islanders were kind of collapsing in the middle and and really committed to taking away the middle of the ice while the canucks just weren't really putting that extra work in even on the back check reloading giving giving their defenseman help and part of me wondered, okay, going into this daunting stretch of of the season, arguably the toughest one, especially with the p- team's playoff hopes kind of hanging on by a thread, is this team going to kind of mail it in? And and are they not even not even consciously, but sometimes subconsciously, it's easy to look at how poorly the season has gone so far. Look at what's ahead, especially on the road know that your your head coach is probably on the way out, know that there are trades probably coming, your captain's going to be out the door, and it can be hard to put that extra 110% in. And subconsciously, you might already kind of expect things to go wrong. And yet I was pretty impressed with the way that they obviously took care of a, a shorthanded Avs team there. The biggest one was they showed, in my opinion, a big difference. They, they were blocking a lot more shots. And that to me was a sign that, okay, they still have respect for Boudreaux. They haven't really quit on him. I, I don't think it's going to matter at the end of the day anyway, because this team's kind of so far from the playoff race that they're not really going to be able to save Bruce's job by the end of it. But if this was, let's say, around this time last year, before before the the club had kind of pulled the trigger on 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 letting management go and letting Travis Green go. I think that would have been the sort of game where we wouldn't have seen a decisive sort of response. So to me, that was more telling just in the sense that, okay, they still have some respect for Boudreaux and they still put in a great effort, racing a 2-0 deficit. They didn't roll over. So that was at least sort of good to see. Yeah. And so, you know, what do you, what do you make of a group that can play so uh, detail driven in one game? And just such a mess the next. And really, this isn't the first time we're having this discussion. We know this. This is mm-hmm. who they are. And I know a lot of it comes down to just structurally who they are. Uh, that generally the 4-2 Colorado games, when they can do so many good things, are the anomaly. Um, but it doesn't take long for them to be shaken back to reality. Um, like, how do you process that? You know, as a, as a fan, great. But how do you process that as a player to determine who exactly are we and why do we go through this all the time? I think it just comes down to inconsistency, right? Teams that are good don't go through nearly as many ups and and downs. Obviously, they do, but you think about uh, 
who's probably been the most volatile team in the league so far? It's probably been St. Louis, right? The the team that at the start of the year lost seven or eight straight and then immediately preceded that by winning seven or eight straight. They've been on such wild streaks. That's probably the most inconsistent team in the league this year. Well, guess what? St. Louis Blues aren't a good aren't a good team this year. They're not the same team that they were last year when they made the playoffs and looked like dark horse contenders. And I, th- and, and to me, that's what I see in this group where when I even look back to the 2019, 20 version of this Canucks team, their performance is would, would kind of, you'd see volatility and volatility, but it wouldn't be nearly to these extremes. There'd always be this, they're, they're, cons- they're, there would be consistency, at least in terms of their ability to win board battles, their ability to block shots. And, and if it wasn't, all right, we're going to be be sealing things off the rush, there was at least a commitment to at least when we can help the goaltender out, we're going to do it. They were a lot more responsible with the puck, even though they played a, a run and gun sort of style at the time. And they the, the common theme I remember in that season was, that club always kind of found a way and they didn't have those same, same types of catastrophic um, um, meltdowns and, and breakdowns. And I think the one interesting, one interesting that did thing that did come to mind after the Winnipeg game was that I think that was the sort of game an average sort of performance that they would have won last year during the height in the peak of Bruce. There it is. And that that was interesting to me because I think that was part of the reason why we were kind of misled into oh playing at whatever point pace they were under Boudreaux and a lot a, a lot of of people had optimism optimism going into this season, including us even that okay this is a team that can maybe contend for a playoff spot because you look at that Winnipeg game that they sort of just played and it was an example of had the offense offense going and yeah, they were leaky off the rush, but you had that game last year and Demko would have been lights out and it would have saved probably a few more of those odd man rushes as opposed to last night where Delia was, um, was definitely below average. I don't think Spencer Martin was particularly good. Um, Ehlers, for example, that goal that, that, uh, that beat Delia, uh, far side, I, I think absolutely he'll, he'll want that one back. And then the power play when it's, when they're down five, four and they need a goal, Last year, they would have scored to tie things up as opposed to allowing a back-breaking shorthanded goal in the third. So you know what? Um, that like, was the worst thing that stood look, out. As you say last year, and we understand about the power play, but this team offensively is better this year, right? And, yeah. and we've seen that in terms of what they've been able to give Spencer Martin on most nights. They are better this year. Um, what would this team look like behind Demko's first 50 games last year? That's a really good question. Because um, we know in the last it, 30, he was just kind of there. Like he was, he yeah, was solid, but not incredible. Yeah. So his first 50 last year, coupled with this level of offense this year, what would this look I like? I mean, I think they'd be close to the playoff bar. I do think that there's been difference aside from just, um, just the kind of goaltending as well, though, because the team's ability to control five and five play, especially on the blue line with, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this later, but uh, Myers and OEL were really regressing. I think all of that's had an impact on um, on on how sort of porous the team has been defensively and the chances they allow, even on the penalty kill, where once Bruce took over, they were really competent and they had initially sort of employed that 
um, heavier, more aggressive for, for check in the neutral zone um, with Scott Walker, obviously. And that was just when Pedersen and Hughes were starting to get those opportunities and they seemed to kind of clamp things down a little bit on uh, on the PK. And that was a big part of, okay, now this is a team that can control and win the special teams battle. But yeah, I mean, if you give them elite goaltending with this type of offense, I think they would have been hovering right around the playoff race. But I almost think it's better that they didn't experience that just because if a team has elite top five in the league goaltending and all they're doing is hanging around the playoff rate, playoff bar race, that tells you that they're not good enough. That tells you that they're not on a path to realistically win playoff rounds, go deep in the postseason and actually contend for a Stanley Cup. And if anything, it would have just done what it did last year, which is mask the team's big picture um, lack of direction. And I think from that perspective, I as, as kind of sad as it is to say, because this season has been really depressing, um, I'm all, it, you almost kind of have to be, I don't, I don't know if glad is the right word, but um, at least this is exposing where the team is really at when you don't have elite goaltending. Okay, so let's take it. Let's let's ask this um, from a different side. While the offense this year is better than it was last year, defensively they're actually worse. And you know, you talk about Myers and OEL. This is not just about the goals scored against them because the goaltending hasn't been as good. It's about the shot volume that's been generated against them. It's about scoring chances that have been generated against them. I believe this team is attempting to play better structural defense. I had this conversation with Kevin Woodley last week. Wait, they're trying? Yeah. I just, <laughs> no, no, like, but, this, but understand where I'm going. Okay, yeah, yeah. They're completely not equipped to do so, and it's actually taking away from some of their ability to, to play up-tempo a little bit, right? Like, they're actually mm – -hmm. I think that the emphasis and the constant noise around structure has actually made – some of this defense worse because it's kind of not what they're necessarily equipped to do. And, and they've actually been worse at controlling five on five and controlling score chances as a result of it. What says you? That's really interesting because if anything, I've thought that OEL and Myers, for example, I think those guys are the biggest example just because they were so good for the team last year, but this, I mean, especially the last few games, the biggest thing that stood out to me is I, I thought they've been <clears throat> a little bit too aggressive in picking the wrong spots to pinch. And I think that's why they've been caught for a lot of on-man rushes. But they're also lost in their own end, right? Like we saw that goal, the tap-in from in front of the net where Myers after the two-on-one, uh, you know, allowing a skater to blast right through the middle, then doesn't pick up the trailer, right? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're lost yeah. in both ends of it. For sure. But I do think right now the... Like it's both, but the bigger issue to me has been their sort of out of position. And when I think it was maybe the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Jets, the second goal where OEL sort of uh, pinched up, uh, pinched up the boards and, and Myers was kind of left behind and, and the, the forwards, um, I think it was maybe Connor on a second goal was able to get behind Myers as well. I, I just, yeah, structures and always all the time off the rush. Structures not always being safe. You know what I mean? Like that's not. The fact that's that they're true. pinching, that's not necessarily indicative of structure. That's indicative of decision-making, right? And structure always doesn't mean playing safe. To me, when I see structure, I look at your defensive zone coverage and mm -hmm. where you are when you're attempting to exit the puck, as opposed to decisions you're making at the offensive blue line. True. I, I mean, the, the pro I, I get what you're saying. The problem is just that 
when you're conceding that much off the rush, like I, I think their rush defensive play has been a way bigger problem than their in zone. Their in zone has been poor as well, below average, but I just think they're getting absolute. I, I just think as a pair, they're getting torched off the rush. And I think a lot of that has to do with their positioning, poor decision-making uh, on pinches. I don't think they're reading well off of each other necessarily. And I think that's a bigger issue right now. So yeah, I mean, maybe there is a, a greater emphasis, like you said, on playing with more structure in, in the defensive end and with defenses on coverage, but you're kind of not seeing it because they're losing the transition battle. And the other thing about losing the transition battle is it's not just about what teams can directly create off the rush, but you're at least at the bare minimum, you're kind of giving them easy zone entries. I don't know how many times I've seen scenarios where OEL and, and Myers aren't really able to play a tight gap in the neutral zone. And how often do you see them kind of like backing up all the way to the tops of the circles and the opposition has a chance to enter the zone and they're not necessarily creating a chance off of it, but they're able to at least get set up. And that's how you create those cycle shifts, which then wear those guys down and then create those uh, scenarios where they get crossed up defensively. Uh, I don't disagree. Um, and before we leave the topic of the Colorado game, let's talk a bit about Kuzmenko. Because, yeah. um, you know, he's been such a, I don't want to say surprise, but probably is a bit of a surprise in terms of just how seamless the transition has been for him. Uh, the chemistry that he's managed with Pedersen has been has been really strong, but he seems to be able to function and play his game regardless now at this point. He, he's kind of gotten to that level of confidence. And, and you know, the other thing I love, uh, and I think this was in your article, he talked about just how much he loves pressure, that early on in his time here, He's seeing jerseys thrown on the ice and he's wondering what the heck is going on, but he likes playing with pressure. Yeah, it's been really impressive seeing him kind of adjust to that transition at a point and continue to kill it at a point where the the team around him and the temperature around around um around the market has um has been has provided really difficult circumstances. For me with Kuzmenko, I mean, right off the bat. We know the offense has, has kind of been there and he's played at like a 36 goal um, near a point per game sort of pace, but it hasn't just been the offensive production, but right off the bat, watching him in training camp initially, I've been impressed at how quickly he's sort of put himself in a position where he isn't a defensive liability. That was one of my biggest question marks for him going into the season, watching him in camp. You'd see scenarios where Pedersen and Mikheyev, for example, and that line was initially put together in Whistler, they'd maybe pinch, ag pinch aggressively on the forecheck and Kuzmenko would sort of have no idea where to be in coverage and it would sort of sometimes create problems. And when you combine that with the fact that uh, he didn't seem to kill it in, in a lot of the, the drills in terms of just his um, conditioning, I worried if that would be something that could potentially hold him back where it's like, okay, this guy can create a lot of, a, a ton of offense. But can we trust him defensively? And even Boudreaux was alluding to that in 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 Whistler. He was saying, "I don't know what he's going to be able to, uh, where he's going to be at defensively. So we might have to shelter him for a bit." And they haven't really had to do that. He he was obviously scratched for, uh, I think it was one game early earlier in the year, October or November. But aside from that, especially relative to some of the other players, it's been smooth sailing. So I think him committing to keeping the mistakes down. Um, being responsible with the puck along the boards in the defensive end. We haven't seen bad turnovers, uh, even at the offensive blue line. For how much he's tried to create and how dynamic he's been, there are, I've, I can rarely think of examples where I've been like, ooh, that was an egregious 
turnover at the offensive blue line, the sort of turnovers we've seen from, I think, a lot of players on this team, including the top guys, like not just Miller, but even at times we have seen it. It's inevitable. It's normal when guys are creating so much that you occasionally see a Pedersen or a Hughes um, or even a Horvat sort of give the puck away. And we haven't really seen that from Kuzmenko. So I think that sharpness has allowed Boudreau to have a trust to lean on him a ton. And then when he has had the puck offensively, he's looked I, th- I think we've seen a, an in-season evolution where he l- he's looked so much more dynamic as a playmaker each and every every game. I think he's really emerging as an individual play driver where when he had the initial success, a lot of it was okay. Positioning and Pedersen and, and Mikheyev are going to really draw all the attention because of their speed, because they can make plays with the puck, Pedersen in particular. And nobody really knew knew who Kuzmenko was in terms of the opposition. And he's able, he was able to just kind of park himself in front of the net and convert on a lot of tap-ins, right? His early scoring highlight reel, I think it was like six of his eight first eight goals were just all tap-ins, which is good for him. But there was also part of me that went, okay, now what could he look like away from Pedersen? And we saw when he had that stretch without, uh, without PD that, okay, he can really create offense on his own. And even in that Colorado game, watching him create from the flank, the initial goal that he had to spark to come back. Um, then obviously later at even strength, the sick tip pass to set up the entry for, for Pedersen and then Kuzmenko eventually scoring. For for this team, he's probably been their third or their fourth best player after Pedersen, after Horvat, after Hughes. He's been that good. And I never really w- would have uh, would have imagined him kind of hitting the ground that... Um, uh, that quickly and exploding the way he has so far. Yeah, and just another difficult decision for Canucks management to make because his value, much like Bo Horvat's, continues to go up and up and up. Uh, lots more to get into on this episode of the VanCast. We're going to get into uh, what this team is doing at center with JT Miller, who seems to have refound his chemistry with Elias Pedersen, and Bo Horvat and potential landing spots for the Canucks captain who just continues to score. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, Harm, as we look at the Colorado situation right now, you know, a team that has certainly been struggling. They had a losing streak before coming into Vancouver, before playing the Canucks and losing that game. When you kind of thought if one of these teams on a losing streak was going to bend, it was probably going to be Colorado and they would get off to Schneid and win again. But no Gabriel Landeskog. They just got Nathan McKinnon back and no real sign of when Landeskog might be coming back. Jared Bednar says he's nowhere close and when you look at their LTI situation, as this gets closer to the deadline, that could be a pretty good landing spot, a team that doesn't have 
Nazem Kadri, who was such an important part of their Stanley Cup run a year ago. You know, and for me, if Bo's going to go, I want to see him win a damn cup. And that could be a pretty good fit for him. Absolutely. I think right off the bat, he's kind of been, or, or Colorado has been the sort of landing spot that everybody has kind of looked at as a front runner, as a favor, just because the fit is, uh, fit would be such a glove where Colorado lost obviously Kadri and they haven't been able to find the answer in the 2C two, two spot. They experimented with Alex Newhook. I think he was more effective on the wing and he just hasn't been able to find traction there. And it's clear, it's a clear sort of area of an uh, area where they need an upgrade. The bigger question I have at this point is whether they're going to be in a strong enough position to justify taking um, an expensive bet and giving up a, a home run t- type of package for a rental like Corvette, because you look at all the factors at play for, for starters. I mean, they gave, they already gave up a ton of, a ton of assets at last year's deadline when they went out and acquired Arturi Lekkinen, um, when they went out and acquired Josh Manson. And we know that a team realistically can't trade its first round pick and a ton of assets every single year. You've got to kind of pick your spots. And I think we initially expected that, okay, this would, would be another year where, where they'd go down that route. But looking at this Avs team right off the bat, in the wildcard standings right now, they're they're, I think, two points behind uh, Edmonton, albeit with uh, with three point with uh, three games in hand. Um, they've had so many injuries, which is kind of affecting the team's chemistry right now. I mean, if it wasn't for Alex Georgiev and the absolute heater that he was on to start the season, the Avs would be even further behind in terms of the wild card race, and they'd be firmly outside a, a playoff spot right now. Obviously, they're sliding right now. Lost five of six. Um, and and the other thing that that strikes me is the top stars are are kind of gassed right now. Where Devon Taves is is playing huge minutes, and we saw against Vancouver that was he was awful. He that was one of the worst games I've I've ever seen Taves play. Um, it's hilarious looking at Miko Rantanen's um, sort of game logs and minutes. He's literally averaging more than twenty five minutes per game. There there have been some games. Um, over the past dozen where he's played 28, 29 minutes even. Um, McKinnon, he just came back from injury and you're already expecting him to sort of um, carry the mail. Makar's regularly playing 30 plus minutes and all of that on top of having the shortest offseason of any team in the league because they went all the way to the Stanley Cup uh, final. So you you take all those factors into consideration and the uncertainty around Landeskog where you don't even necessarily know if your captain is going to be ready for the start of the playoffs. And I was talking to my athletic colleague, uh, Peter Baugh, who uh, who covers the Avs, and he was sort of wondering that, okay, this next stretch is going to be make or break in terms of figuring out, A, whether the Avs can kind of sl- firmly solidify themselves in a sort of playoff spot and prove that, okay, we can get this shit back on track. And then the second, the second sort of part of it, Landis Cox rehab, and because I sort of, you know, Peter was kind of wondering this too. If Colorado isn't sure that they're going to get Landis Cox back and that he's going to be ready for the start of the playoffs, they might not look at this as all right. This is our year, and they may they might have to turn to more affordable upgrades. So if you're a Canucks fan right now, I'd be really closely kind of watching the Colorado situation and really hoping that they can find traction and give. GM uh, Chris McFarland a reason to sort of believe that okay they can go all in at the deadline and and make a push for for Horvat because 
Uh, if they don't get back on track, then you might be looking at one of your top front runners all of a sudden not potentially being in the bidding for Horvat and maybe looking at sort of secondary pieces, more affordable options like maybe a Sean Monahan. Yeah, I mean, looking at them, I, I just I can't get past the team that I saw last year. And I know they're not that team at this moment without Landis Gog. And you bring up some great points about what some of their top players are being saddled with right now because it just seems they're going to figure it out. Like the team is too talented and now too experienced to not find a way to get in and have some kind of a run here between now and the deadline to show that they're, they're still in there, that they're still going to get in. I mean, is this going to be Vegas from a year ago? Right. Like that. I'm just trying to wrap my head around what they actually are, but I think they'll I, I get in. It, right. Like my worry yeah, isn't so, that they'll get in. Um, so, sorry, keep going. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's fine. It like, and that's the point is that at what point do they have their 10 game stretch where they win eight of 10? Because it just feels like it's inevitable that that's going to happen. But like, maybe it doesn't, right? I mean, maybe you're right. They don't get Landeskog back. The other guys get worn down. It leads to more injuries. You know, we always felt last year that they, their goaltending was average, but they certainly didn't win because of it, right? Uh, not maybe they didn't win. In, it wasn't that they won in spite of it, but. That wasn't the reason they were as successful as they were. So that's not going to carry them during this stretch. But it just feels like a 8 of 10, you know, 7, 2, and 1 in, in a 10-game stretch that's going to get them three or four points above the bars is inevitable. But maybe it doesn't happen. Well, uh, in having this conversation, I'm not too worried specifically about the playoff picture. I think they'll, I think they'll get in. I don't think this is like Vegas last year. But there are sort of... Like when you look at how sort of long the the potential window is going to be for this Avs team, um, you do wonder like if if they're going to look at themselves as we're one of the top five teams if Landis Cog isn't ready. I think that's the biggest X factor uh, because especially when this team lost Burakovsky and Kadri in the offseason, you already lost such a, a, a key part of um, your secondary sort of scoring and. They, they've sort of, even even when they're healthy, they're already a pretty top-heavy team up front. And if you don't have Landeskog, who's really the 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 key cog, the, the true driver of that second line, you lose a, a player like that. And at that point, it's not it's not even that you give up on the season, right? Like, that's not the point I'm, I'm trying to make. The point is w- whether GM would kind of look at, okay, we already went all in sort of last year and out of this season and next, we can probably only pick one of those years to go all in. And in normal circumstances, because you're the defending Stanley Cup champions, you would just pick this year. But if you're all of a sudden looking at it and going, we're not sure if our captain's going to be back or exactly how he's going to look. Um, our top guys are absolutely potent, you know, gassed right now. Um, and we might not like, we might not even get a favorable sort of uh, pl- playoff matchup going in. And and we haven't really had this team chemistry going because we've seen kind of the form that they've they've been on recently. That if they uh, again, I'd be lo- I'd be thinking, okay, would their acquisitions maybe be more modest? And they're looking to add depth. And and again, like a, a guy like Monahan is a, is a good example where it's like he probably wouldn't cost you a lot, and he's also got seventeen points in twenty five games. And 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 the other thing is, I think. The big question mark as it pertains to Horvat in Colorado is whether they view him as as the sort of player that they can re-sign if they were to acquire. Because I was talking to Peter Baugh again, and he was saying that from the Avs' perspective, he thinks that 
Colorado would probably be a lot more um, willing to give up a, 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 lucrative, a lucrative trade package if they had confidence that um, or, or they felt that they could re-sign Horvat in the offseason potentially, as opposed to if he was just rental, that they may be a lot more reluctant to give up a um, you know, a, a guy like Newhook in a package. And and that's going to be an important sort of X factor as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, the the question with Colorado isn't are are they going to get back into the playoff race or are they going to get in because they are, um, but they're going to have to show that they're that they still have the potential to be dominant going into the playoffs um, because their injury situation has really shaken things up. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, for there are organizations who can't, you know, that are up in that stratosphere that just can't go for it every year because they don't have the assets, as you mentioned off the top. And sometimes not going forward in a given year allows you to take a little bit of a breath as far as your asset management is concerned before you can get back into that kind of situation the following offseason or the following deadline. And the Avs just may find themselves in that situation this year. But um, I, I think he looked great in that uniform. I, think I know. The way he plays I, I- fits their style and you know, he, he could be that piece, especially with his ability to win faceoffs and as much as he's able to do. Yeah. I mean, you look at um, a healthy sort of um, what the Avs could could look like if um, if they had if they had Horvat in this in the spot and, and they had Landeskog come back and you can easily see the appeal of of acquiring a piece like that, because all of a sudden the, that top six becomes one of the most. Um, electric in the NHL, it goes from okay, the the Avs are just kind of a, a one line team right now. To you could have a scenario where the top lines maybe the top lines maybe got um, uh, you know Lekkinen, McKinnon, Rantanen, especially with Rantanen going the way he has been this year, and then a second line of Landis, Cog, Horvat, Nichushkin. Can you imagine that second line? Three wow. huge bodies that can drive the net, that can all make plays, that are all really talented offensively, but can also just dominate you physically? Well, you know, and for, for me, I think my mindset on the whole Horvat thing has changed so much because there was a period of time where I was just angry that Canucks have put themselves into this situation, that they dropped the ball on the JT Miller contract, and as a result, it's going to cost them the best person in the organization who also happens to back it up. He's not just a nice guy, but clearly the guy can play the game at an incredibly high level. And it, it bothered me to no end that they had done this to themselves. And now my mind is just accepted the fact that it's going to happen and that it needs to happen, right? Like we all, I'm on team rebuild, right? There's no question about that. Um, but now I just kind of feel, where's he going to land? And like, I want to, I want to hope that team wins the Stanley cup. And if you're a Canuck fan, what are the teams you just don't want to see him play for? I would think Edmonton, Calgary, Boston. Tor- Toronto as well. Uh, do you think Boston still yeah, a thing? You don't want to see him play in Toronto. Like, uh, do people still hate Boston? Yes, of course you have to. I don't, I don't get, like, I, I almost think like when we, for example, Toronto is way Brad more hated right is now. on that team, as long as Brad Mar- team. Um, there's still there's still a lot of core pieces that were there in 2011. Not a lot, but there's still three to four. Uh, you know, including Pasternak right now. Like for you, yeah, you, you have to hate Boston. Um, so I, I don't yeah, see. Toronto I for sure. I, I wouldn't mind as long as Marshawn's there. You got to hate Boston. You can hate Marshawn, but like it's hard to hate Bergeron, for example. True, but Marshawn's there. He's the signature. It's been so long that I just don't think it's like people in this market don't really hate Chicago anymore, right? Like, I, not I think, at all. But that's because they suck. 
True, but I, I, I just don't get the. Same. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't get the feeling that um, and, and people would be repulsed well, and, if they saw Horvat um, on on the boat. Oh, for sure, you would. Really? For sure, you would. Come I, on, I feel like it'd be no, uh, the. That's a poll. That's a poll question. We we need to put that out there from the Van Cash. Then, what's the team you'd least like to see him in? It'd be Toronto. Where, it or, would be Toronto, but Boston, and Boston, and the Al, Boston and the Alberta teams are are up there. The Alberta, I'd, I'd even go. I think the Alberta teams, especially Edmonton, I feel like that would be a lot more repulsive than Boston. Like seeing, like seeing Horvat on Edmonton would be a, like, at least from my perspective, I would hate seeing that a lot more than Boston. Um, I yeah, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree, but that doesn't mean that Boston would be a comfortable look, right? Like, yeah, if you I saw mean, him in, in a yeah. if you saw him in a place like Colorado, you'd like you'd be easily openly cheering. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying Boston would be like Colorado where it's like, oh, like you're all of a sudden cheering for the Bruins from the cup. Um, I'm just saying that I don't like I'm curious, like maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I just don't think that people would hate it as much as some of those other teams. I think we might need to put it out there uh, as a as a Van Cass poll, question, which we don't do, which we don't do enough of. Hey, let's take one more quick break. Uh, when we come back, I do want to get into um, Miller and Pedersen together. We haven't talked a lot about that and also some other other. Uh, you know, interesting sample sizes that the Canucks have gotten from players like Will Lockwood and more when the VanCast continues. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So, Harm, the Canucks have gone back and forth on what to do with JT Miller. I think organizationally, especially after they move on from Bo Horvat, there's going to be no choice but to play him down the center. When you consider what they're paying him and for how long they're paying him, there is no choice but to put him back at center but this team has gotten back into uh, Jack Stednika playing in the middle and they've wound up trying to you know load up so to speak two top lines and that means JT Miller on Elias Pettersson's wing we've seen the lotto line with the two of them and Brock Besser it's worked in the past Brock Besser's not with them now but certainly the two of them are working yeah I mean initially I've kind of got my take I've, I've got a couple takes on this but I actually wanted to kind of throw it back at you I'm, I'm curious what you've seen initially 
Well, I, I just have always liked him better on the wing, right? I mean, there's there's no doubt about it because defensively and, you know, structurally, as we talked about earlier, like he's just more comfortable there, right? He doesn't have to make that read and pick the right player up coming into his own end. Um, he's he's more comfortable with wall play. And I just think he and Pedersen, they think the game the same and they play at the same pace. So for me, I, like, I think it's always been a good fit. Now, whether or not this organization is equipped to load up their two highest paid forwards, um, you know, which eventually, watch well, GPD already is, you know, are they equipped to kind of load up that way or are they going to continue the experiment? And I'm not going to say it's beating your head up against the wall, but JT Miller's not a kid, right? He's been in this league a long time. He is who he is. Uh, I think when you play him with Pedersen, there's a little less pressure on him to be the main driver of a line, especially the way Pedersen's playing right now. So I, I just can't help but look at that situation long-term versus short-term and whether or not that's going to be the right solution. But, you know, maybe it's a poor man's dry saddle and McDavid that eventually when they're not working, driving their own lines, which happens more often than people realize in Edmonton, they put them together. Yeah, or even you you look at um, what happened kind of with Jeff Skinner in, in Buffalo, and, and Miller hasn't struggled anywhere near to where uh, near to the extent that Skinner struggled in um, in Buffalo or Buffalo originally under Ralph uh, Ralph Kruger, but he all of a sudden was was on a line with uh, with Thompson and um, and and Alex Tuck with uh, under Don Granado, the new head coach in, in Buffalo last season, and he Skinner kind of took off and immediately it skyrocketed his value, and Skinner's back to essentially kind of being a point per game player after initially looking like one of the worst contracts. Um, in the league now, in in Miller's case, and especially over the last uh, last couple of games, I think there was one point that you made that really stood out, which is that I think the pressure of not having to drive a line on his own helps Miller simplify. Where Pedersen, we've seen through these last few games, has really been able to kind of transport the puck up the ice, um, handle a lot of the offense's own entries. And so that means Miller isn't the one that's having to make the play at the offensive blue line where he so often turns the puck over, right? Like that's what's really struck me, especially in the last game against Winnipeg, um, including the one on Miller's goal was Pedersen was able to execute a lot of difficult zone entries with possession. Now, all of a sudden, Miller doesn't have to worry about that. And he's able to just play a direct, get the puck sort of style, make a quick play. Um, whereas before earlier in the season, even at occasional points um, in the 2021 campaign where we saw some some of the similar sort of two-way warts, it, it felt like he had to, Miller had to make the perfect play. Like he, he felt this almost onus and responsibility that I've got to make the perfect play and I've got to do it all by myself. And we've seen situations in the past where he's tried to dangle through too many players or he's tried to thread the needle with the perfect pass. And I think when he's playing with Pedersen, because Pedersen is so sharp and so accurate with a lot of that decision-making, it takes that load and that burden off of Miller. And through the last couple of games, I've barely been able to think of any examples where Miller's had an egregious turnover. I feel like he's been able to clean up the two-way side of his game. I know that that line got scored on two or three times um, the other night against Winnipeg. But overall, when I look at the sample last of the last two games, I think that line has created a, a ton. They obviously produced Miller had his first three point game since April 23rd. Uh, and most importantly, that was his first multi-point even strength game of the season, I believe. So wow. for him to kind of get going at five on five, that's something we haven't seen um, him really do to this point 
in the campaign. And I think him and Patterson have really meshed well together and um, kudos to Boudreaux for, for putting them together. And I think that's a combination you kind of have to continue riding. Yeah, as the Lions, as of Monday morning, in practice in Pittsburgh, as they get set to have JT Miller go back to his hometown for a game on Tuesday, you've got Kuzmenko uh, and uh, Miller on the wings with PD in the middle, Besser in the middle between, uh, sorry, Horvat in the middle between Besser and Mikheyev, Dries in the middle between Lockwood and Garland. I do want to talk about Will Lockwood in a moment. And Curtis Lazar in the middle with Stadnika and Dakota Joshua on the wings. Uh, standard defensive pairs, Hughes Bear, OEL Myers, and Dermott. Shen. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we do know that uh, Demko's on the trip. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll see whether or not he becomes an option at the end of the trip. I still find it difficult to think he's going to play at any point on this trip, but just the opportunity to get some practice time um, in a couple of sessions and some morning skates is probably a good thing and, and just to be around the coaches and whatnot. Uh, but big picture, go ahead. Quickly, I, now that you mentioned, um, mentioned the deep pairs and lines, and we talked about how OEL and Myers have kind of struggled together. Do you think they're at the point now where they have to split up Hughes and Bear and, and kind of go back to what we maybe saw earlier in the year where, where you go something like Hugh Shen, um, OEL, uh, Bear, and then bump Myers to to the to the third pair with Dermot? Yeah, I think so. I think they should. I mean, Hughes and Shen are always good together. Um, you know, whether or not you want to give Shen that much time, but like OEL Myers doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, but you know, and, and look, Hughes Myers, the few times they've tried that also doesn't work. So they're certainly limited. And I think Dermot is still trying to find his way back in. So having him with Shen is not a bad thing, but I think, I think big picture, uh, it does make sense to split those two up. I, I don't think there's any way around that. And as far as, as far as Miller is concerned, is there any scenario where they don't put him back at center at some point? You mean this season? Yeah. It's a I mean, really you, good you question. have to believe they're going to trade. You have to believe they're going to yeah. trade Besser. So the 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 latest possible case is when that happens, they move Miller back to center. But even before that, yeah, I, I think you meant Horvat there. But um, sorry, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, before that, I, I I I'd be surprised. I almost I hope they don't, just because I think this is what works works best. I think once Horvat goes, then you kind of you kind of have to experiment with it just because I look at the the rest of the lineup and go like, I don't really want Sheldon dry centering my second line all of a sudden. And there aren't a lot of other sort of internal answers that immediately come to mind. And it is something that you have to maybe think about going into next season anyway. So I wouldn't mind it at that point, but if anything, I want him to find confidence, find traction at five on five, even if it's, even if it's just to kind of, build that momentum for when he does inevitably have to um, move back to center because Miller's the sort of player who needs to sort of feel that momentum to play his best hockey. When he's frustrated, when he's struggling, he compounds his own issues. He becomes his own worst enemy uh, by letting one mistake turn into two and letting it snowball through games and even bef- even when he does have to make that transition, I want him to be in a good headspace. I want him to be producing at five on five. I want him to be feeling better about his two-way game so that, that, so that that way he's in a better position to equip that really tough challenge. So I, I want I want to stick those guys, Pedersen and, and Miller together um, as long as they're producing, as long as they're comfortable together for as long as possible until you sort of make that trade and are forced to 
um, forced to kind of um, then potentially move uh, Miller back to center. Yeah, you know, I wonder if it'll help. And I say that because this guy's coming off a 99-point season. If ever a player was feeling great about his game coming into a year, it would be J.T. Miller now. And, you know, you had an entire offseason to process playing in the middle and how, you know, watch film and do all of these things. And it, it just didn't turn into a thing. I just don't know that they can function there. And if they ever do truly commit to a rebuild and you identify a young center that you acquire in a trade or what have you, I mean, generally those guys don't get gifted top six spots. But failing that, think of what you'd have to pay for a legitimate second-line NHL center. So I just, you know, I, I don't know that this situation is ever going to work itself out. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, 28 years old, so we'll see. But, um, yeah, like it, I just look at this as square peg round hole, and I don't know the scenario that's going to change that. I, I truly Truly don't. Again, big picture. We're not talking about this season because they can ride it out this year, but eventually you have a choice, right? Are you truly going to rebuild and allow a young player to grow into that position? Or are you going to this offseason, once you traded Bo Horvat because you weren't willing to pay him, you know, close to $8 million, are you going to go out and get somebody that you've got to pay six to or even five to? Like, is that is that what's needed at this point? So, Absolutely not. They better not. <laughs> I know, but it is a worry. Like, it is a worry. On. It's a legit worry. Like, come on. Like, they're going to trade him, and what are they going to go do after that? Because there's nobody in the building. There's nobody in the system. So you better count on a dynamic young center getting acquired in a trade. But then if you prioritize your right side of your defense, which you also should, that's going to leave you exposed a little bit. So... I think Miller's got to play at center. I just think the organization is not equipped for any other option at this stage. They've absolutely got to do it. And I don't know that it ends well, but we'll see where it goes. Before we go quickly, let's talk a bit about Will Lockwood, who's getting a good run here. And this is what we've talked about with these young players, whether it's a guy like Will Lockwood now, whether it was Jack Rathbone early in the season who didn't necessarily get the run, and then he finally kind of did because they were forced to with injuries and he didn't live up to it. Um, He's getting an opportunity. Many believe that Hoaglander should be here instead. Pod Colson should be here instead. Lockwood was playing well in the minors, got the opportunity. What do you think of his play so far? I've liked it. Credit to him. I wasn't sure at, at the end of last season when he had his cup of coffee, whether he'd be able to sort of make a legit uh, big, league, big league impact. But so far, I've been impressed with what I've seen. I think we've seen far greater consistency in terms of I think there were always points when we'd see him in the NHL where, we, where we'd go okay the speed pops the physicality pops but he wouldn't be able to sustain it for 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 long stretches we'd see long stretches where he'd be he'd go quiet all of a sudden and we'd go okay where where's the la where's the last big hit or we haven't seen him really use his speed to make an impact on the forecheck and being able to disrupt plays but I think we've seen that on a far uh, more consistent basis, which I think speaks to, I think the evolution and and some of the um, progress he's made in processing. And um, I, I see a player right now who's a lot more accustomed to the NHL pace, not in terms of how he's speed wise, not in terms of how he's moving his feet, but how his brain is reading plays and understanding. Okay, this is the spot where I've got to be positionally. This is the spot where I can chase the puck. This is the spot where I should hold my position. 
I also see him a lot more comfortable so far on the breakout. That was one of my biggest concerns was this idea that there were always points, even even back when I'd watch him sometimes in the American League, when if there's a breakout under pressure along the wall in the defensive zone, he'd kind of panic or turn pucks over. That was even an issue in preseason at um, uh, last season. And it always felt like until he figures that detail out, I, I I thought to myself, he, he like that's a prerequisite for him to become a full-time NHL player. Just because if you're not going to add a ton of offense, you've got to at least be reliable defensively if you're going to just be an energy guy. And if you can't be trusted to make a play from the defensive half wall when you're under pressure, then a coach can never trust you. And it feels like he's really started to mature that way. There was one play in that Winnipeg game, I want to say either in the second or the third period, where really subtle. I, I don't think anyone would, would have necessarily caught it, but um, there was a there was a pass that he received in kind of an awkward spot in stride, and he was able to really smoothly kind of kick kick it up to his stick and all in one 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 motion, one stride, um, help lead the puck out of the defensive end, and it, it really didn't lead lead much to you know uh, any offense. It was kind of a pretty standard dump in, but just the fact that he was able to make sure that it got out of the zone responsibly. I looked at that play and I went last year, he would have lost the puck in his feet, turned it over and the opposition would have been back the other way. So I've, uh, I've been impressed with some of his two way details so far. He's obviously gotten some run on the penalty kill. And um, I, I think it looks a lot more mature and, and hopefully he can sort of keep this up. Yeah, no, I've enjoyed watching him play. I, I think that um, he's, he's been able to keep the game simple. Right, he hasn't made it too big for himself, and and if you can make those plays, those simple plays you talk about on the defensive half wall, that's how you earn trust. And I've seen him use his speed. I've liked what I've seen from him physically. Um, I think there's some there's there's some there there as Rancher likes to say, and uh, you know, like is this guy eventually going to play his way up the lineup? Who knows? But right now, that's not what they need. They need somebody who can play responsible hockey in the role that he's in, in a bottom six role. And I think he's doing well, right? And if you if, if you can get those kinds of players, you don't have to overpay for those kinds of players because we all know where we need to spend uh, our money as far as uh, the Canucks are concerned. And it is um, Aiden McDonough is a, is a player that I'm intrigued with, with what he's shown right now this year in college hockey and whether or not the Canucks are going to be able to get that done before the end of the season and what he can show when he comes. Yeah, I'm well first of all, the biggest question is whether he can whether he's going to uh, sign here, right? Totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and like that to me is like I'm still I'm still wondering. He said I I think that he intends to, but until it until it actually happens, it's always um it's always a question mark especially because we have seen situations in the past whether it's been with with just Justin Schultz or um a lot of other scenarios where a guy coming out of college a team will think that, okay, he's going to sign. And then at the last minute going into his senior year, they decide to just go in for agency. And it, it's especially relevant um, because like the Canucks are going to have to do a bit of a sell job because, I mean, imagine if you're McDonough and you're looking at Pod Colson, you're looking at Hoglander, you're looking at Rathbone. Um, McDonough and, and Rathbone know each other really well. Uh, both kind of coming out of the the Boston area, they're friends. What do you think Jack Rathbone is uh, is is telling Aiden yeah. McDonough about his his experience trying to um, earn earn trust um, earn trust with the Canucks? We've we've just seen a number of these guys uh, struggle to um, struggle to earn 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 their way into the lineup. I think in in Rathbone's well, you're case, you're going to be able to number one. You're going to be able to say you're going to have a different head coach to play for. Yeah, and there is opportunity and. 
you know, ultimately different positions, different situations. But sure, if you're Jack Rathbone, you've probably got a bad taste in your mouth at how things have gone. I mean, you know, you wonder if he will own some of that, right? Because you, you do need to have that level of maturity as a young player. But yeah, I'm curious. You know, the, he said all the right things so far. It's a, you know, critical signing for the Canucks. Well, Harm, we could do an entire show on how the Canucks have handled young prospects. So we'll see where it goes with McDonough. Uh, Canucks need to get him in the fold just from the standpoint of making that statement and finding value, uh, you know, whether it be European free agents, whether it be college draft picks, whether it be college free agents, all of it. Uh, given this cap situation, they're going to have to find that value everywhere. Uh, but we're going to wrap up this edition of the VanCast. Interesting schedule for the Canucks coming up because they've got Pittsburgh, as we mentioned, followed by Tampa, then Florida, then Carolina before they get back home. So it's not going to get any easier for this team. Meanwhile, as for other podcasting options, Luke Hughes, the bronze medal winning captain of Team USA at the 2023 World Junior Hockey Championships, joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentili on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. And the Stewart boys, Anthony and Chris, join the roundtable with Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, and Mike Russo ahead of their jerseys being honored by the Kingston Frontenacs on Wednesdays at the Athletic Hockey Show. As for us, we're going to have a live room on Thursday after the Canucks Tampa game, Drancher and myself. So make sure you tune into that and participate. We will get you the uh, coordinates once we get into game day and during that game. We usually go about 30 minutes after the game has ended. So that should be a lot of fun. We're going to have one of those every week. Some of those will involve guests. Some of those will be post-game. But we always love doing those live rooms. And you can follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a rating and a review. You can also subscribe to The Athletic. NHL's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at The Athletic Hockey Show. Get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. So as I said, uh, Harm and I will be back next Monday and uh, Drancer and I on Thursday with the live room. Thanks for listening, everyone.